Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for choosing to spend some time with us here today. Now you'll know that the National Association for Primary Education has been a long-term supporter of the show and I've been involved for probably over five years now and for the last year, 18 months, I've been the vice chair. Now each year they have a Schiller lecture which they often put together with a conference and this year they did a virtual conference entitled Towards a Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now, the conference was comprised of this keynote lecture given by Dr. Tony Ude and then supported by four separate presentations from four different people giving their take on aspects of this from different schools and and a university to give sort of their perspective and, and their understanding of it. So this Twilight conference was very full and we didn't quite have time to be able to to have as much Q&A as we'd want to. So what we did is we had the opportunity to do a live Facebook Q&A with Dr. Tony Ude. And I put to him some of the questions that had been sent in and we had some people live on the call. And I just thought that this conversation was so insightful and had so many great things that could be brought into the primary curriculum. I thought we'd be able to put it together and, and give you that opportunity to, one, understand exactly the sort of thing that NAEP's involved in, but also for you to really get the benefit of that as well. Now, if you'd like to listen to the entire lecture, that's available on the National Association for Primary Education YouTube channel. Just search their name there and it should pop up. But I will have a link directly to that video in the show notes of this podcast. So do check that out and that will take you directly there. So this was a Facebook Live Q&A that I did with Dr. Tony Ute just a week or so ago and I really hope that this gives you some food for thought and how you can have a balanced and broadly based curriculum within your school. Hello and welcome to our National Association for Primary Education Facebook Live with Dr. Tony Hughes. We had our annual conference um, a couple of weeks ago now on the 8th of March and we had Tony giving our keynote lecture and we also had four presentations as part of that event as well and we were extremely delighted to have, um, I think it was nearly 100 people that um, actually turned up live on the event which was absolutely fantastic and I know a lot of people and a lot of students who were taking part as well were really sort of thankful that we put it on and also made it as as cheap as possible and of course it was free for students which was absolutely brilliant so tony thank you so much for agreeing to to join us again today i know we ran out of time at the end of the lecture and um didn't quite get enough time to get some of the q a which some people had so we have some questions that people have already sent through which we'll, we'll talk about in due course but why don't you give us a little bit of a flavor about what the lecture is about just to, to refresh our memories yes thank you very much mark um uh, the lecture was talking particularly about a, a, a why a balanced and broadly based primary curriculum matters, uh, and in particular for those who are young children and those from disadvantaged backgrounds. And those last two are really because quite often there is a a belief that a broad and balanced curriculum is better for slightly older children, maybe seven, eight. 10, 12 year olds, but that actually for younger children and for those from very disadvantaged backgrounds, that one really needs to be focusing much more on the basics and on literacy and numeracy and that sort of thing. And I was arguing that, uh, and I believe it very strongly, that 
of course literacy and numeracy is important for all children but that actually a balanced and broadly based curriculum is necessary for all children and in many ways in particular for those from disadvantaged backgrounds and i made four arguments which broadly linked one was related to Ofsted and the law, and the law says that schools should offer such a curriculum, and Ofsted says that, well, certainly in key stages two and three. I was arguing key stage one as well. A second one, uh, which I think is more cogent, which is based really around how children learn. A third one, which was very much linked with my interest in the humanities and the arts in thinking about what a balanced and broadly based curriculum entails. Uh, it was more to do with um, the idea of what I call democratic citizenship, but I suppose putting that a bit more simply is about how children are enabled to face the very complex challenges that, that, that face all of us, including children both now and in the future. And finally, and as I say, they were all interlinked, one which was more based on social justice I suppose putting it very briefly uh, on the basis that those who come from privileged backgrounds will get a, a broad and balanced range of opportunities because of what they get out of school you know whether that's the arts or sport or, or going to the theater or going to historical monuments which those from more disadvantaged backgrounds are much less likely to do um, and so uh, that was the sort of basis of the argument that I was saying, though I also ended by saying that it isn't just ab about the written curriculum and that other things such as environments and relationships and how people teach is particularly important if we are going to make education more, uh, humane, more human and more humane that you know not just a uh, an exam factory or or that you know there's much more to education than testing so that's a very quick overview of what i was um, what i was trying to get across yeah i think that's um yeah, it's, it's really really important and i think that was certainly something that struck me i think towards the towards the end of the lecture was the that personal element of kind of the relationship that you have with the, the people that you're teaching or all the children around you and I think that really struck home to me both as uh, remembering myself as a child um, and also as a, as a music teacher now and, and also lots of the interviews that we've had through the podcast as well it's often that kind of memory of how you made someone feel both in terms of what they experienced but also that relationship and I think that was a really 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 important factor. And just to comment on that, if I may, in, in relation particularly to the primary teachers and primary class teachers, it's one of the most wonderful things about being a primary class teacher, but also one of the most demanding ones is that one is such an important person in those young children's lives over the course of a year, possibly over the course of even longer. And, you know, for in secondary schools, inevitably those who are teaching history or science or, or mathematics or whatever are unlikely to get that same intensity of relationship and as i say that's for, in my experience both as a teacher head teacher and knowing other teachers that's one of the wonderful things about being um, a primary teacher so i think we are in good shape tony to, to get cracking on with the first questions that um that came in 
And and this came from an ex-teacher in Hampshire, Barbara. Thank you so much for getting in contact and, and giving us your feedback and, and the information and, and your questions as well. Um, and and she was saying that she found that the the argument you made in your in your lecture was absolutely compelling. And it's interesting um, hearing sort of a, an ex-head teacher sort of view on this. Um, but she was saying moving forward, is it possible for schools to work with the current national curriculum framework to actually achieve the sorts of things that you were talking about? I think it's a it's a very timely question and I think my answer is yes it is but it's not easy and it requires people uh, particularly head teachers but also teachers who have a, a courageous and a strong view about what is in the best interests of, of, of the children in their care. And I try to make that, that argument, particularly in relation to the humanities and the arts, but, but not just that, but across the whole curriculum. Um, I, so I think there are many elements which make it more difficult at the moment, sometimes slightly constraining aspect of the current national curriculum. Though I think if one actually looks at it, it's probably not quite so constraining as people think. I think quite often people look at the national curriculum uh, in, in terms of what they think it says rather than what it actually says. And for instance, some of, I and some of my colleagues have spoken to senior leads in, in Ofsted um, who are saying in, for history and geography and RE and, and in other areas to say, but actually look right back at some of the basic principles behind the national curriculum. And just to add as an aside, I think if I, I mean, I do think that a the national curriculum framework at some point does need to be changed. But I can also, I'm afraid, feel a sort of collective groan among the profession if uh, there was a sort of talk about a, another massive review of the curriculum because I think many of us have become quite tired of those structural changes. I think just to, to comment as well, and it's a similar one in some ways, is that Ofsted is very often seen as, as constraining, and it is in, for, for many schools. Um, but I think it's a very welcome move where Ofsted have been looking towards a better balanced and broadly based curriculum, particularly in key stages two and three. And, and so I think one needs, in a sense, to take them at their word and not only to look at the sort of arguments that I was making in terms of how children learn and social justice and democratic citizenship and so on, but actually to really to, to have the, both the bravery but backed up by the professional discussion and judgment to, uh, to say this is how we see the way in which the national curriculum should best be put into practice with our children. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I, I do think it's it, it's possible. And just as, as a little follow on to that, do you see that as really important, or I should say, where do you see it important within the school? Is that the head teacher and the senior leadership? Is it the governing body? Is it... Um, the collaboration between the two that kind of sets that tone for for what they want to achieve within like say the framework but actually knowing that using that understanding that knowledge you've just been talking about you need to lead from the front as it were by allowing that to filter through throughout the rest of the school 
I think there's years and years of uh, research and, and experience which says that if one hasn't got particularly the head teacher or and or the senior leadership team, but particularly the head teacher giving a lead in this respect, then it's enormously difficult. So I would place a great deal of emphasis on the head teacher um, giving, a, giving a lead in this respect. Now, that's not to say that governors don't have an important role, but I think if I, I don't know if there are any governors on the call, but if there was a message to governors, I think I would be saying, I hope that one of the, at least one of the governing body would be um, asking not just about what are the test results, which quite often, and the data, which quite often governing bodies are interested in, and, and probably rightly, um, but actually also asking the sorts of questions about, um, you know, to what extent are we fulfilling that requirement for a balanced and broadly based curriculum? So I, I suppose it comes back to what the role of governors is. And I think in the end, that the professional judgment it lies with teachers and head teachers, but the uh, that, that it's an important role of governors to be trying to question, to support, to um, uh, help teachers and particularly head teachers and and, and the teacher uh, in order to work out um, how that should be put into practice. And her her follow up question to that was: um, Do academies, rather than local authority schools, have the most potential and freedom to develop such a curriculum and and the experiences through that? Yes, I, I saw I saw the question in advance, and I'm the answer is I'm not absolutely sure. I think that structurally, academies have more freedom over the curriculum than local authority schools. Um, so I think theoretically that is the case. I think though in practice, some academy chains are very focused around um, data, around test scores, around literacy and numeracy, those sorts of what I would call measurable outcomes. And that local authorities, the local authority schools rather, probably don't have quite as much freedom in theory but i think in practice all schools have much more freedom if they are brave enough to work out what they are seeking to do and to then to base that on uh, you know on, on their professional judgment about what's best for young children i, I think just to add as, as a aside but it did prompt me to say this i've always thought it's quite strange the government's position to say that curriculum flexibility and greater autonomy for academies is worthwhile because it seems to me that if actually greater curriculum uh, autonomy and freedom is is good for one set of schools it seems to me it probably is for all and you know i think i had hope would hope that we can move out of a, what a I referred to at the end of the lecture as current constraints, which actually tend to make people a bit fearful of innovation and, and a bit worried about trying something different. Whereas it seems to me that it's actually at the heart of teaching um, that one takes a few risks and therefore one makes a few mistakes. 
And I think what I what I really liked about that is the idea of deciding what it is that you want to be doing for your school and then finding the way around that. And of course, that may be different if you're in an academy as opposed to local authority. But it also is going to be different if you're a rural school or in in a city school. You know, the opportunities for for schools that can just nip into into central London, for example, to watch a play or go to a museum is very different than if you're living, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles from your nearest city. So I think there's always going to be challenges. But I think when you start start from that sort of individual school standpoint and say this is what we'd like to achieve how can we go about it then like say you find all of those things that you want to to to, to make that that experience come to you so i think that, that that's really really important and and again just to interrupt sorry mark but just to generalize from what you say i think what you highlight is the importance of looking at the context of a particular school in terms of deciding what opportunities and experiences one should offer offer to children so you've you've given that example of you know geographical proximity and, and rural as opposed to urban schools but again there are different types of schools all of which have some great opportunities and some particular challenges so just as a simple example if one's thinking about diversity that the challenges in a in a small rural school may be different um, from those in a um, in a large urban uh, ethnically diverse school so one needs to be examining one's own context in order to say what are the opportunities that we can we can exploit within our local area and what are some of the opportunities which aren't so easy to access which we therefore need to go out of our way to make more available um, for children who are going to live in a a globalized and much more diverse world than, than when I was a boy. And you mentioned before about in, innovation and um, and another of um, Barbara's questions was where, and I think specifically in England, is curriculum innovation to be found at present? And I guess that means, you know, where have you seen it in certain schools or certain situations or whether or where do you see within the curriculum itself the opportunity to be um, as innovative as possible? Uh, it, it, you, you've interpreted the question in, in two different ways, and, I, I, and I'll take the one that I immediately thought of, and then I'll come back to your second one. I think the answer to the first one, which is the more sort of geographical one, is that it's in patches, it's in places, it's in particular schools. And for those of you who were at the conference, and if you weren't at the conference, do look at the presentations, that we had there three schools one of the other presentations was from a, a university, but three schools particularly, which were looking at the curriculum and then thinking how to apply it in their own context in really interesting and innovative ways. I'm also involved in an initiative, as people may know, called Humanities 2020. And we love to get case studies about how people are trying to make links across the different humanities subjects, or you know, maybe looking at history and then seeing how that might link into their particular community. And I think that idea of connections is enormously important. I remember the Schiller Lecture three or four years ago uh, was by someone who was very interested in the mantle of the expert which was a particular way of a, a really detailed and embedded topic um, and uh, so I think the answer is that one needs to 
look out for fellow travelers in one's own area people who sort of see it see the curriculum in the same sort of way and then to share ideas to share expertise um and so i think that's my answer to the to the the bit as i saw the question about you know where is it to be found at the moment in some schools but but not enough but uh, let's uh, hope that that becomes um, uh, wider i think in terms of where within the curriculum i think the answer in many cases is actually almost everywhere i mean i highlighted the humanities and the arts but i i might have highlighted science for example and i haven't taught in schools for some years now um, but i remember doing um, some sustained work with a group of year two and three children um, about about science and you know rather than a, a, a sort of transmission of facts it was a much more experimental approach trying to enable children to observe and to interpret uh, and and to um you know make critical comments about each other's ideas critical but helpful and thoughtful constructive comments and that's what i call tend to call ways of working ways of working as a scientist and I very much like that idea so that when we try and encourage young children when they are approaching something to say, so how might one look at this from the point of view of a historian or how might a scientist look at that or what might we learn that in terms of the language or the culture or the set of beliefs that people have. And so I guess what I'm arguing against is a very transmissive view of culture that I've got all the answers and you just have to listen and, um, and, and soak them up. I don't think that works for anybody really or not for very many people, but I certainly don't think it works very well for young children. And so that emphasis that Christian Schiller and, and I then tried to carry on about children being active, uh, about exploring, imagining, adapting, all of those sorts of words. Um, so I do think there is um, space in the curriculum for that, as well as, if you like, for the more obvious example of spending more time than is done at the moment in terms of the humanities and the arts and to some extent science. And I know certainly, um, having spoken to many people on, on both the Nate podcast, but on my podcast, Education on Fire, there, there's lots of people out there who were just sort of being able to try and basically put their arms around all aspects of learning and make it work together I think I spoke to um, Teach Active recently you know and that idea of of movement getting especially boys to be moving while they're able to then do something which might be maths related or English related and we know that you have to combine a lot of this sort of maths and English because of people's feeling that it has to be an integral part of the, of the curriculum which of course it is but also being able to have enough innovation or enough ability to kind of change what that looks like maybe each day and, and I think those sorts of things as well are, are really sort of well worth mentioning. Yeah no I, I would agree with that um, and I mean you I'm not sure if you use the word connections but I did earlier but so it's some of those connections across different types of experience and different subject areas and I think we do get too caught up these days for whatever reason in dividing the, the curriculum 
into separate silos, you know, where one is just doing one particular subject. And I don't think it's either how young children learn or in fact how probably most of us learn, because one's trying the whole time to make connections between different uh, different areas of knowledge and different disciplines, in my view. So I think one needs to be to be looking out for that. And although I, I didn't mention, and I'm not going to go on at any length now, about timetable, but I think if one has an incredibly rigid timetable where one does literacy, at, you know, for a large part of the day and numeracy for another part of the day, that again becomes a constraint if one isn't careful, unless there's very, very skilled teaching. And the danger then is that some of those areas which really engage many young children, whether it's history or PE or uh, geography or, or science or whatever, simply don't get as much time as actually they need. And I do think young children need time to, to explore these ideas and to internalise them. I, I agree. And um, the next question came in terms of what is NAEP's role in, in, in all of this? And um, I've got um, two or three ideas which I'm going to talk about. The thing that first came um, to me was the fact that NAEP is basically coordinating the primary umbrella group, which is sort of bringing together all the subject leaders, um, the unions, basically everyone involved in, in primary education to try and have I guess sort of oh, a one voice really in terms of, of us sharing information about sharing what's going on and having conversations so that we all have this way of, of collaborating together. Um, and I know Robert um, Young, our General Secretary, has been absolutely instrumental in, in, in sort of revitalising this and, and bringing it back to life. And I think so many people have found that really appreciative. So that's something which NAEP is doing to try and sort of share as many ideas as we possibly can. I guess partly also the fact that, you know, towards a balanced and broadly based curriculum as a conference idea was um, something we wanted to do in order to bring this conversation to the fore. You know, it wasn't about the latest phonics idea or the, the latest way of doing something else directly within one part of the curriculum. It's about our sort of belief that child first, child centred education and how we can go about that is incredibly important, both in school, but also the collaboration and the relationship between school and home and, and vice versa. So I, th I think just actually having events and ideas and the way that we can do that including our, our journalists as, as I mentioned at the very beginning we've talked about diversity recently and we're also going to be talking about some of the curriculum and how things are going to be moving on now that we're back in school face to face much more so um, that's definitely an important one and I, I mentioned collaboration before we do work with lots of organisations and um, I guess one that's probably really worth mentioning here is is more than a score which of course is very much sort of trying to campaign on the fact that testing for year six certainly and also below is, is something which isn't something we want to support you know we want children to be children we want to obviously give them everything that they need in this continual testing is something which they're they're very much sort of fighting against and something which we're in collaboration with and supporting them with in any way that we can so I guess that having this sort of national unified voice as much as we can and, and this would be my my plea to you if you're watching this um, obviously live but also on the replay in, in terms of you know the more people who are members of NAEP the more people who are talking about NAEP the more people we can bring in together the more our voice is then heard 
as we said in the primary umbrella group but also um, I know um, Peter Council our information officer was at the all party parliamentary group for the, the teaching profession recently you know and, and to be able to attend these things or to have conversations with ministers as a large organisation supporting many people and we're non-political and we're a charity you know we come as a as a kind of a, a blank canvas from that point of view so I think whatever we can do in those things to bring these conversations to the fore is really what we're what we're trying to do as much as we as much as we possibly can so is there anything else you'd like to mention just before we we move on to the next set of questions there Tony I I, I don't think so except that perhaps just to pick up on one point that you made um, which was in relation to the primary umbrella group you, you spoke about a voice for primary education and I think very often there are very strong voices within education which may come from subject associations the early years quite often has quite a strong voice though I'm sure it would wish to have a stronger voice but it's one of my concerns over the last few years that actually that as a result of there not being a very unified voice for primary education that too often one then sees some inappropriate pedagogy, some inappropriate curriculum, some inappropriate thinking, sort of permeating into, into primary education. So I do think it's massively important for those who have a, if you like, a, a balanced and broadly based view of the child to be speaking about that in a whole lot range of different forums so sometimes that's in policy level as you're saying sometimes it's in conference sometimes it might be through social media it obviously might for many teachers and young teachers be in the staff room but we we need to be more confident as a as a, a primary profession that we have a great deal of expertise based on our knowledge of the whole child over a long period of time as we were talking about a few minutes ago and mike has um put a comment in the uh, put a post in the comments i should say um so you can check that out but he's he said that nape is always looking out for innovative practices that we can use our links to give oxygen to, to new ideas so please do contact nape if you are particularly proud of a practice your school is doing and I, yeah i wholeheartedly agree with that it's something that which we like to share on the podcast it's something that mike has been into schools to be able to to do videos for the youtube channel so i think actually seeing this idea of good practice and being able to then say this isn't just something we're talking about this is an actual sort of a reality this is the practically how we put these things in place and be able to share those sorts of things I think then gives you that that sense of a lot of what we've talked about is you know how does it look going forward and actually it's often by looking at snippets of what's going on now that we can then just um, as you said give oxygen to and and give more more options to more people which I think is really really important so the other person that gave us some questions, which we're really grateful for, was um, Katerina. She's an undergrad who's about to become a, an NQT in September. So it's really nice to have sort of both both sides of um, of the of the career spectrum, if you like. And um, and she very kindly said that she was very much in in alignment with the lecture. It's very important to her in terms of her views and what she believes education is all about. Um, and she asked, um, "What are the best ways to make change?" is to obviously do it in her own classroom. That's something I talk a lot on the podcast in, in terms of, you know, you can do what you can do, your conversation with each child, your your classroom, everything, your interactions. Um, what is it that you can do 
beyond that. So obviously, I guess that 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 that, that could that could be um, um, taken in all sorts of ways. But where, where where do you start with that? I'm doing the best I can, but where do I take it from there? Yeah, thank you, Katerina. And it, and it's a it's a really um, it's a really important and good question. And I think I would answer it to start off with by stealing an idea from Sir Tim Brighouse, who's, if you ever get a chance to listen to him, is a very inspirational teacher and has also been associated with Nate, who was asked a question in a conference many years ago, you know, what should I, what should be the most important thing that I should be looking out for when I'm looking for my first job? And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, oh, I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, and what he said is, you really need to be very thoughtful and careful, if you can, about what your first job is. Now, you may not have any choice in that, but I think we tend to think that schools are only interviewing teachers and it's a one-way process. And certainly when one is um, being interviewed, that's often what it feels like. But I do, I, th I would recommend, and I do think it's very important that actually those who are looking for jobs, particularly if you've got a certain level of choice in a particular area, depending obviously on many factors, is that you want to be trying to ask of schools what their approach is to a balanced and broadly based curriculum, what their approach is to professional development, what their approach is to new ideas that maybe you're um, bringing in. And, and that, that, that can be a little bit tricky because, of course, you might be seen as a, a, a little bit forward. But I, I do think it's very important. And I'll just say very briefly why. One of the things that I've written about is actually about expertise and about the development of expertise. And it's very important and it's backed up again and again by research and experience to recognize that you're never going to finish a, a, a first teaching course as if you like the finished product. One is always learning as a teacher and that the first four or five years are particularly important in terms of developing expertise. And what that means, I think, is that therefore the, um, the school, the context in which you are teaching is particularly important. And many schools, sadly, are exercise constraints on uh, new teachers. Um, I think the better schools actually recognise that they may be more up to date with modern ideas, that schools have a great deal to gain from new people who are um, coming in as, as newly qualified teachers because they have fresh ideas, they're probably more up to date with some of the research and, and so on. So I think one shouldn't go into the into us into the one's first job if one can help it feeling oh i just need to do exactly what i'm told of course you do in some ways but what you also do is bring a, 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 an enthusiasm a new perspective all sorts of new ideas from which i think other colleagues can learn so i think that would be part of my question about what i what you can do beyond that i think then and this picks up another 
uh, another part of Katerina's question about where one can find support. I think one does need to look for support in, in all sorts of different ways. I mean, it may be from the institution where you were studying, who sometimes keep very good links carrying on with professional development. It may be through subject associations. It may be through um, continuing to read research. It may be through a lot of social media or things like Bruehead and so on. But I think I would just add to that that some of those can be excellent. But sometimes, and I don't blame anybody on this, what people are looking for is, oh, what's the immediate thing I need to do tomorrow? What can I do next Tuesday afternoon? And I think that probably the most important place where one is going to be gaining that sort of support is um, in one's own school. And so I think it's very important when one goes into one's own school to look for, again, what I've earlier called fellow travellers or people on the senior leadership team or mentors who are going to be particularly supportive. I think one should seek to be an active participant in building the curriculum rather than just passively accepting everything that one is told. Now, I, do, I know in, in some schools that's much more difficult than in others. Um, but I think if one finds the right school, then that's the that's a very important place of where one's going to develop one's own expertise and in so doing um, ensure that one's providing the children with um, with a uh, better balanced and more broadly based curriculum. Yeah, that's a, it's an excellent point. And I've also heard the same thing described in terms of going after any kind of job, that kind of, you know, you interviewing people to say, this is what I'm after. Are you able to give it to me? And it's a completely different mindset, isn't it? But I think it's a really important one from your own point of view, because then you start off with that footing of knowing what you're about. And, and I guess everything that you said kind of brings in perfectly to her her last question there, which is, if there's not enough support or like-minded colleagues, how can you reach out to ensure that the way of teaching of the curriculum like we're talking about is opened up to all children within the community? I'll, I'll pick up the end of that question first, the all children in the community. I think that primary teachers very often have um, great skill, and probably a bit more at the younger end of the primary school than the older end, what I'm about to say, at involving parents and a whole range of parents. And I think that needs to be not just in terms of helping with reading or, or maybe supporting a particular child who's finding it difficult, which is, if you like, the most probably the most common uh, way of doing that and also not just maybe helping out with cooking or with sports or whatever all of those are important but i do think that if one is going to be really inclusive that there are all sorts of opportunities to try and involve uh, different both different parents and also different people within the community. Now that's going to depend a bit the sort of community that you're in. But just for instance, and I know they're in quite a privileged position in some ways, that St. Ebbs, who did one of the presentations at the conference, were talking about, which is a school based in Oxford, were talking about some of the resources which were in their parent body um, and which they were seeking to draw on. Now the, the obvious answer in some way might be 
that oh, it's really good to, if you've got people who are coming from a local university or whatever. But I think, but I, I would go much broader than that. What about the people who own a local shop? What about the the, the, the local imam or the local rabbi or the, or the local minister or whatever? There's all sorts of resources that one can draw on. So that, that's the, if you like the bit about opening up to, to all children in the community, it's about involving a wider range of people but also in doing that, I think that values the experience and the background of many children in an inclusive way. I think in terms of, of how one goes about it, again, it depends very much on the constraints which are put upon one by the school. And in, in some cases, they I know they can be quite considerable. But I do often think that we sometimes imagine some of those constraints to be a bit stronger than actually they are. And that if you can show, for instance, oh, I really want to take my children out to the local nature reserve, or I just wonder if we might be able to, you know, have somebody in from the museum. Um, there's all sorts of opportunities like that, which, which I think can be, can be opened up and which really help to engage many children and, and to enrich their experience. And I mean, I haven't used the word enrich. I don't think I used it in the lecture, but I think we do quite often sort of offer children a rather impoverished range of experiences if all it is is literacy and numeracy skills. So if one thinks about the wonderful books that there are around that are open to children or the opportunity, I know you're interested in music, Mark, I mean, the different types of music or, or what, what there is within the community and within children's own lives. And I think we need to draw on that more um, and um, well, really just to re reiterate what I said is that when a someone who's going in as a newly qualified teacher, I think at least to ask that um, is um, is well worth doing. Um, you know, because I, I think actually you are, you when you become the teacher, you become part of that new school learning community and you have a great deal to offer. Although obviously there will be other people who maybe have more experience um, so it's a much more collaborative thing rather than just an individual one. There are a couple, just a couple of things I'd like to pick up on there. One, I, I love the word enriched and I also love the feeling of community because when you talk about enriching what you have and the community around you, there's a sense that it's there's so much there that you can just take on board and be part of. I much prefer that than a wow day, which just seems like we're going to have a one day feature now and then we're back to business as usual, as it, as it were. And, and I think so. So I think the terminologies that we use and how we do that can have a really big impact on on how we feel, both as um, obviously as teachers, but also as pupils as well. And, and the other thing I, I'd like to say is the fact that if you think about how you teach the pupils in your class, I think that we, we talked about the kind of the relationships and the personalities and what you say to one child, you might say a different way to a different child. And, and that's really important to have that connection. But I think also we forget sometimes as the teachers that you also need that kind of mindset when you're talking to senior leadership or the head or whoever it happens to be in terms of, you know, 
understanding things from their position. What we're all trying to do the best we can for the school, but you, sometimes you just need to sort of shine a light in a certain way to kind of pique their interest or to be able to say, "Ah, oh, look, I've I've thought about this in this way," whatever that happens to be. So I think that kind of if you want to put it in a sort of football terminology, that kind of sort of man management idea of, of how you go about what you want to do. And again, starting by what it is that you're trying to achieve and then how you go about speaking to the various people involved to make that happen, I think can be really important. And I, and I think, I guess that kind of sort of goes full circle really to like you were saying, Tony, about the fact almost interviewing the school for your job in, in terms of what you're asking for is actually being a little bit more assertive in that way rather than just taking what you think you have to do. Yes, I mean, just, just to pick up on two points that you make there, Mark, one of them is you talk about the how, um, and I couldn't agree more. It's the how one does things is in many ways more important than what the what is. And, you know, we tend to see the curriculum in terms of what, you know, that it's, a you know, there's all sorts of facts and skills that need to be learned. But I'm, I go back to my point about ways of working, I'm more important, and your point about how one talks both to children and to other colleagues and senior leaders. So there's something about how it's done, because teaching in the end is a relationship-based profession, I think. Relationships are, are absolutely the heart of that. And then the second point is just to go back to something that you said earlier, uh, about the really memorable teacher. And I always loved those columns in the newspaper. You know, the teacher I remember or the one who really inspired me. You know, I became the Astronomer Royal or, or you know, I suddenly became, a, you know, a, 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 a general or, or whatever because of, or, or indeed a, an electrician or whatever, because of what Miss So-and-so or, or Mr. So-and-so really lit that fire and really listened to me and, and really thought about it. And I think it's very important to have a to almost ask the question as a teacher, and particularly as a primary teacher, of what sort of person do I want children to remember me as? You know, and that they're probably not going to want to remember you. Well, they're probably not going to remember you as the person who really helped them to crack long division or the fronted adverbial or whatever. In the end, it's going to be because actually that was a person who was really kind when I was going through that difficult time. Or the person who was really encouraged me with my reading and actually helped me to recognize that. Or the person who took me on that residential trip, which was such an inspirational bit in my life, as it was, I think, for many children in primary schools. I couldn't agree more. And, um, and I think all of those things I guess the the common theme is is that personal. You know, you're you're the person that brings you to your class. You're the person that brings you to your school, and being more of you while being understanding and respectful for what everyone else is around you. I guess is the most important thing. And I guess you will draw those other colleagues and and people to you in your way of thinking and sharing your ideas. And and I think that's also true in support out of your school as well. I mean, never has it been easier to, to find your tribe, whether that's a, a Facebook group or whether it's uh, a Twitter or whatever. And, and, and these, these things can be, as I guess, as dangerous as they are supportive, depending on how much time you spend on there and the sorts of people that you follow and how you get involved in that. But I think certainly that's one thing that um i mean i've been podcasting since 2016 now you know sharing these innovations sharing these stories 
creating a community which is is there just to sort of so that you feel like no matter what school you're in there is a whole world of people just like you that want to be you know full of inspiration full of enthusiasm doing the best you possibly can and, and I think the more you feel like you're surrounded by those people wherever you do find them um, then I think the the better feeling you'll be as a teacher and, and the more longevity and the happier you'll be as well and also then you can sort of understand the positives you can understand the innovations and the way that you can bring those things into your classroom but also that you know that there are people out there who know what you're going through if you're struggling and can help you and support you in those ways as well so and i would also just say the other thing is is that you know this um nate nape is a, is a conference obviously is something we do once a year but we're looking to develop this you know if there are certain themes if there are certain ideas certain things you'd like us to cover much more of just get in contact with us um and let us know if you go to nate.org.uk you can get in contact do all sorts of things there and let us know what you'd like more of because we're here to help you that's our that's our job if you like that's what we're here to try and achieve and to try and support you with so keep reaching out tell us more and more of what you like and we'll try and produce that for you let, let, let me just comment, Mark, just on one thing that you said. I mean, in agreeing with you, um, but ju just to add one other point, which is that I used in the lecture the metaphor of uh, that we need both mirrors and windows. Mirrors to see people who are like ourselves and windows to see through to people who are different. And I, I, I think I, I, it's not quite the... I was just reminded of it. It's a slightly different point from the one that you were making. But I think we do increasingly, whether we're six years old or 67 years old, we do tend to live in our little bubbles um, with people who are who think a bit like us. And it's really important that we help young children both to find people who are like them, whom they can emulate and, uh, and uh, use as role models but also to recognize that there are people who are different in some ways and that diversity is not something to be feared. It's something to be understood and to be welcomed. And it seems to me that's a very important message in an, um, in an inclusive world and a more diverse world, such as the one in which uh, young children grow up these days can't thank you enough Tony for coming back on and, and having this conversation I think it's been incredibly supportive and and um, inspiring in terms of being able to talk around what it is that you actually did for the Shiller lecture so thank you very much for being here and and like I said before if you need us for anything it's nape.org.uk and thank you so much for watching if you're watching this on the replay um, this is going to be here for you on our on our feed so you'll be able to to catch up with everything there at whatever time you do that and feel free to put anything you want in the comments after that and we can follow up through message and various things we're going to be here um, from here on in so thank you very much indeed thank you very much Tony Thank you, Mark, and thank you, everybody. And uh, as I said at the very end of the lecture, it's not an easy struggle, but it's a very important one. And I hope it's one in which uh, all of you can, can take part. And uh, thanks very much for your comments and, uh, and your interest. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.